Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this special election results edition of the Prospect Podcast. My name is Steve Bloomfield. It's the morning after the night before and a handful of Prospect editors are gathered here in the office, all bleary-eyed but uh, fired up somewhat by coffee and adrenaline. I'm joined by our editor Tom Clark, uh, head of digital uh, Steph Boland and commissioning editor Alex Dean. Hello to you all. Um, Tom. Let's begin with you. Boris Johnson has his majority. Uh, bigger than any since 2001, bigger than any Tory leader since 1987. How did it happen? Well, it's big and he's won it, as you say. I mean, and he won it um, not in quite the way that Margaret Thatcher did in 1987, which was um, a classic kind of Conservative South versus Labour North um, election with the South being a bit bigger than the North, but instead by really hammering Labour in the industrial Midlands and in the um, parts of the industrial North um, as well. So the kind of Cummings gambit, if you like, which was to say, look, there's a lot of places um, uh, in the top half of the country where people did vote for Brexit. They were a bit fed up before they voted for Brexit, but they're a lot more fed up when they had the sense that they voted for Brexit and nothing was being done about it. Um, and uh, that anger might be enough to make them to vote Conservative. And so it's come to pass. And I guess, Steph, for, for what happens next, there's this issue over were those votes lent to the Tories as a one-off, let's just get Brexit done? Um, or is there more of a seismic shift and people who have traditionally not voted uh, Tory are, are now more willing to? Well, the answer's... As ever, six of one, half a dozen of the other. We look at the red wall or so-called red wall Tom was referring to there and actually we find those seats quite heterogeneous. So there are former industrial heartlands that have underseen demographic change such that maybe it's not so shocking. They're more likely to vote Conservative now. There's also seats like Hindburn and Burnley um, where what we've seen is a plummet in Labour's popularity. Some people who have been out on the doors are saying that's due to the personal unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn, but that in itself is also likely to be an oversimplification. So what we have now is a five-year parliament, most likely, um, where several things could shift with regards to Brexit. We are now leaving the EU, we must presume, at the end of January. Whether or not that will end in a recession, problems for the country which will chip away again at people's confidence in the Conservatives remains to be seen. But it's it's all to play for, but to play for over a relatively long period from where we're sat now. And, and Alex, it's a big win for the Tories, but if you actually look at the 
the proportion of the votes that they won, it is very similar, perhaps might even end up being exactly the same uh, percentage, around 42-43%, as Theresa May won in 2017, which was supposedly uh, a terrible election for the Tories. The difference being this time that the Labour vote collapsed. Yeah, I mean, I saw John Curtis um, having a bit of fun showing that actually when you toss up the Remain and Leave um, parties... Oh, it's not 4852, is it? it? It's 4852-52 on the Remain side. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, So, yeah, no, it depends which side you're on. But, um, uh, yeah, so he was, he was having a bit of fun with that last night. Um, I agree definitely with Steph that Brexit's now going to happen um, because I guess what matters ultimately is seats. Boris Johnson has the seats um, and he can get his withdrawal agreement bill through. Um but I can't see how you can divine any mandate for the future relationship from, from the election. Um, so I really don't know what the next step is. Okay, well, that's good because I was going to ask you what the next step is. Um, maybe Tom can answer that. There are three things I think we should sort of throw this forward to. One is uh, what next for Labour. One is what next for the union. Um, but the other, as Alex has just alluded to there, is what next for Brexit, Tom? And as Alex says, yes, it looks like we're almost certain to formally leave on the 31st of January but what our future relationship both with uh, the European Union and with other countries around the world will be still remains pretty much up in the air. Just taking one step back for a minute I mean in terms of like how big a route for the left or whatever this is I've just written a kind of upbeat piece on this which I know I'll get um, some stick for Um, but um, there is a you know, there is a, a depressing view, which is that we're now into the politics of what in America is called what's the matter with Kansas, where you have downtrodden, fed up places where people are motivated in their voting mostly by rage. And you've got this across much of the Midwest, where you've got people supporting Donald Trump because he might not have a plan for those people, but he um, has a kind of nationalism and an anger that, that he can um, bang the drum for. And so, like, if we were being gloomy, and um, for lots of people on the centre and left, it is a day for gloom, that's the way you'd say it's heading. On the other side, and this brings it back to Brexit and back to this more cheerful piece I've just written, is Boris Johnson has been incredibly evasive up until now, all the way uh, from writing two articles about whether he wanted to remain or leave in the Brexit referendum, right through to this year, where he became Prime Minister and, first of all, um, sort of convinced everyone he was a zealot by um, kicking out all the moderates of his party, saying he was perfectly happy to fall off the cliff edge on Halloween, um, uh, closing down Parliament. All of that said, I'm a hard man, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get Brexit done. And then, of course, he pivoted and he swallowed the deal that Theresa May couldn't swallow, which is to say, let's turn Northern Ireland into a separate economic union unacceptable to Britain a year or two before, but suddenly for Boris Johnson, the zealot, it was acceptable. Now, the next deadline that's coming up is very soon. It's in June. He's got to decide whether he wants to give himself more time, the time it would need in the single market to negotiate a proper trade deal in order to protect industry and avoid crashing out. The problem is the Conservative manifesto said, he isn't going to do that. So he's going to have to finally show his hand on whether he's a hard man on Brexit or not. And he's going to alienate people either way. Well, Tom, this is something I've been speaking to Ivan Rogers about, who was our former ambassador uh, to the EU. And then he famously resigned in protest um, at the lack of reality on Brexit in 2017. Um, and he's been assessing this view of, uh, you know, Johnson has the numbers now to pursue whichever 
kind of Brexit he so chooses, basically. The hardliners on, you know, there are no Remain hardliners in his party anymore, I guess. Mm. And um, the Leavers, there aren't enough of them. Um, you know, the, the real Spartans like Marc Francois and so on. Um, he can kind of cast them aside if he wants to. Um, and so there's this theory that's kind of seen quite a lot of on Twitter and, uh, you know, on the airwaves and stuff over the last few hours saying that Johnson, if he wanted to, could now pivot to a softer Brexit because he's got the numbers to do that. Um, but Ivan Rogers was saying he doesn't actually think that um, Johnson's behaviour so far backs that view up. He expects actually we're heading for a, a hard Brexit. So he is he, here's a man who is willing to make a prediction at least. And it kind of brings us back to the question of why people voted Conservative. What you were saying there about um, the idea of it being an outbreak of anger or disappointment in the political system. I think we've really got to hold on until we have things like the British Electoral Study that give us a little bit more information about the breakdown of voting patterns and in that sense it's to come back to your question about Labour runners and riders and what might happen now for the Labour Party it's in a sense a very good thing that Jeremy Corbyn might be remaining in post for a while I mean the party's got plenty of time to decide what its strategy is going to be going into the next election and if we find it was Brexit um, that was the the main you know, motivator of the move away from the Labour vote, they might end up with a slightly different kind of leader than if the issue is to do with Corbynism per and se. him being seen as extreme or whatever. Yes, exactly. Um, well, let's talk about uh, about Labour and uh, and where it goes next. Um, first of all, Tom, where did it go wrong? I mean, bearing in mind that the caveat from Steph that there are certain things that we just simply can't know yet exactly how much it was Brexit, how much it was Corbyn, how much it was anti-Semitism, how much it was the manifesto, how much it was Corbyn hatred in uh, from from certain sections of the press. Um, what do you think they didn't get right? To be honest, Steve, I think they got virtually everything wrong. Um, bit of an exception. Some of their economic policies are probably timely and uh, and could have taken them somewhere if they were competently communicated. But they weren't. So let's kind of rewind and look at the the roots of um, this. Um, first of all, um, the two sides of the Labour Party, the left and the and the kind of anti-Corbyn right, hate each other much more than they hate the Conservatives. You know, it's it's, it's personal. It's full of vendetta. It's angry and and, and rageful. Um, and we've seen that time and again. You know, we saw it on the left attacking the right side with the ludicrous move to try and get rid of Tom Watson at the Labour Party conference being one example. Other examples have included kind of nodding through um, kind of cranks and headbangers on the anti-Semitism stuff because they think they might be in the left tribe, so we'll give them a free pass. Um, On the other side, you had Labour MPs who just were not prepared to work with Corbyn from day one, who decided that the whole Brexit vote was his fault and who decided that actually all we needed to do is get back to 2006 and everything would be fine as if neither the Iraq war nor the um, uh, banker crisis had ever happened. And so, um, you know, civil war (laughs) is the first big thing that went wrong. Um, And then, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn personally and his uh, inability to get a point across went wrong. Um, And um, the failure to prepare the ground for an extremely radical manifesto also went wrong. If you're going to do something like talk about maximum working week or, um, you know, giving workers shares, you need to like start telling people that this is possible a long time in advance, not just dump it all and expect the public's going to read the manifesto. Steph, there was also an issue with the campaign itself. Um, partly in terms of the ground game and where they sent people. And so, for example, you know, we saw 
um, Pfizer Shaheen in, in Chingford and Woodford Green, who was uh, fighting against Ian Duncan Smith. Uh, she's a popular candidate. He is a bit of a bogeyman, to say at least, to, to Labour. So that that drew a lot of supporters. And so, for example, there were one weekend, 700 people came out to campaign in the seat, which, frankly, they weren't going to win. Um, and yet you also had this, um, they played up this idea that they had a really good digital game. And, yeah, I think even on election day, we were receiving press releases from Momentum um, it, extolling the virtues of their incredible digital game and how uh, they'd had half of everyone on Facebook had seen one of their videos. Did they, was it just that the message was wrong or were they actually not reaching those messages to the right people? It's a combination of things again. I mean, talking about the ground game, I heard from one activist and this, you know, this is just a rumour, um, but quite an entertaining and revealing one that a Tory councillor in Chingford had their door knocked on four times during the short campaign. And I mean, there are some activists who have started levelling complaints at regional about where resources were sent in that ground game, but there's also the bigger realignment of British politics where you see Labour support moving to the cities and in some of those smaller towns in what we once would have thought of as the traditional Labour heartlands, you perhaps don't have the support base. And that question of where the vote is also came across in the digital campaign. They're very good at creating viral content and organic content, but I was very struck, for instance, looking at momentums out in the final weekend of the campaign to see they were getting a huge number of views in Scotland, which perhaps isn't the best place to be targeting them now, whether that's just because people were sharing them up there or whether that had been chosen as an ad target. It's not quite clear, but perhaps something went slightly amiss there. We'll find out more, I'm sure. <laughs> something went a bit wrong. Steve, the one thing that went wrong, I think, with the analysis of this election um, is basically what happened in 2017. Because if we'd got up on June the 12th or whenever it was in, in 2017 and had this result, we'd have all sort of said, right, well, that was what we were going to get, wasn't it? But instead, we suddenly had Labour putting on 10 percentage points um, and the Tories shedding seats. Um and Theresa May was running a red, white and blue campaign in much the way that Boris Johnson did. What, why has it worked for him when it failed for her against the same opponent? It's a difficult question. I mean, th- there are some things I think are quite clear. One is that uh, Boris Johnson is a better campaigner than Theresa May. Uh, he is... When he gets out of the fridge. When he gets out of the fridge, yeah. Um, he's more uh, he's more appealing to more people than Theresa May. They ran a presidential campaign around Theresa May last, last time around without a presidential-style candidate. She was just not up to that. Um, and they, should have, uh, they shouldn't have run the campaign in that way. Boris Johnson is more suited to that. Uh, now, he has very high um, disapproval rating, but then... Yeah, there are lots of people that really don't like him, but then there are lots of people who really do like him. Uh, Theresa May, uh, by the end of the campaign, uh, was piling them up in the disapprove and not really stacking them on in the in the approve. So there's that. The other issue is Jeremy Corbyn was a was a, a relatively new politician um, to most people in in 2017. Um, yes, he'd been around since 1983, but he hadn't been a frontline politician. People got to know him and. Uh, lots of people actually sort of thought, well, you know, he seems okay. That has changed dramatically in the last two years. Um, and then I think the other thing is, um, is probably like to be the, the Brexit issue. As you say, Theresa May did run on a, yeah, this is a Brexit election, vote for me to get Brexit done. Um, although without that that pithy slogan. 
but it didn't feel like a Brexit election in 2017. It was a dementia tax election. It was a fox hunting election. It was a it was everything else uh, to do with British politics because Brexit didn't at that stage feel like this is absolutely urgent and the deadline is right now. And so I think that will be the interesting thing uh, is to see in the future how many of these people who have voted Tory this time have essentially seen it as like a European election where uh, I'm going to give my vote to UKIP or the Brexit party to to make a point uh, and how many are seeing it as as something more. I I agree with all that, Steve. Um, And I definitely think that Brexit has polarised us now in a way that it hadn't quite managed to in 2017 and simply just the passage of time means that the Brexit pitch could resonate better this time than last time. Um, But Tom, I also take your point about how in one respect Boris was kind of doing the May pitch and it failed for May and it worked for him. And I think that's actually an interesting story of the last few years because of course, if Theresa May had proposed Boris's final Brexit deal, there's absolutely no chance it would have got through Parliament. (laughs) If you see what I mean. So it's a weird thing where it's about the salesperson. It it seems to be a big element because, uh, you know, if if May had come back and the first thing she proposed was um, this hard border down the Irish Sea, that I think there's zero chance the Commons would have given its assent. But that's also the the hard right of the Tory party didn't trust Theresa May. They didn't see her as one of their own in the way that Boris Johnson, head of vote leave, um, yes, with all the ambiguity of his positions, as, as uh, Tom mentioned earlier, but seen as a, a true believer uh, in every sense of, of that word, misspellings and all. Uh, and so he can get away with it in a way that I think uh, Theresa May couldn't. Um, unless, anyone else, unless anyone has anything else to add on Brexit, should we move on to our final thing about the future of the Union? Um, Tom, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, will it still be called that in 10 years' time or will we call it the United Kingdom of England and Wales? <laughs> um, I think... Um I'm going to defer to staff who knows much more about the Northern Ireland side of things. On Scotland, I think this has put a huge rocket under independence. Um, uh, I did think, until quite recently, that the fact that extricating yourself from a trade block that had been around for 50-odd years had proved to be such a nightmare might actually make people think twice about um, Scottish independence, you know. Extricating yourself from a trade block that's existed for 300 years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it, it's deeper, it's more integrated. You might need a, you know, rather than arguments about border checks, you'd be talking about a border wall across Hadrian's Wall. You and know, currency. And currency and all these, all these hideous questions, um, like which we'd now be like given reason to kind of pause and say, do we really want an even bigger wrangle? But like... We know for the last 10 years, right back to 2010, when Labour was on the march in Scotland, actually, it did positively well in Scotland was Labour was getting hammered everywhere else. It's been a different political culture and nothing is going to kind of reinforce that more than the SNP cleaning up whilst, um, you know, you've got the 20th Etonian plummy Englishman in charge uh, with essentially an English nationalist agenda in London. Um, They're going to call for um, a referendum. Um, Boris Johnson's going to be very reluctant to give them a referendum. And the fact that he's seen as blocking it will probably give the SNP a majority at Holyrood at the next elections, at which point you've got, if not a constitutional crisis, a kind of democratic crisis. Steph, in Northern Ireland, uh, we have more Remain MPs than uh, than Leave MPs, uh, but more crucially, more Nationalist MPs than Unionist 
unionist MPs, more nationalist MPs than unionist MPs uh, for the first time ever. Is that just a cosmetic change or do you think there is actually something deeper going on there? Part of the thing you have to remember in Northern Ireland is there's nationalist and there's nationalist. So yes, we've lost EUP MPs, um, but Sinn Féin have had the biggest swing away from their vote. The SDLP has done very well in this election. So I think it's a, a bit of a misinterpretation to look from Westminster and go, we're looking at an independent Scotland and a united Ireland. In the shorter term, what I think is more likely to happen is a chance at a return to power sharing in Stormont. Because the DUP struggled in this election, there's a motivation for them to come back to the table, particularly around the Irish Language Act, which has been a real problem in getting the talks over the line thus far. So what we might see is we're coming up to two years um, without an assembly in Northern Ireland, is those parties going back to the table due to the fact neither of them have done as well as they'd hope in this election. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Steph, Alex, Tom, thank you all very much indeed. Uh, Don't forget, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk to read all our coverage of the election results and what it all means. Uh, Several pieces going up over the weekend and early into uh, next week. Uh, Don't forget as well, the new double issue of Prospect Magazines is on newsstands now. Do go out and buy it. My name is Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.